This is episode number 128, Operating Behind a Mask, with Michael Brody Waite. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a brief announcement regarding our virtual meetup, Courageous Conversations. This is something that we started a few weeks ago through Zoom, where every single Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time, we host a one-hour-long call for all of us within the community to connect and to learn more about each other and the individual journeys that we take within our lives. If you're interested in joining any of the upcoming calls, go ahead and leave us a message through our website, to which we'll respond with all the details where you can join and at what time. Now, let's get back to our show. Welcome back to another episode of the Overcoming Odds podcast. Today's guest is someone that I was fortunate enough of virtually meeting through a story that I came across of his, and I wanted to reach out to him and welcome him him onto this platform and give him an opportunity to share his story, his own lived experience. But before we get into any of that, Michael, I want to give some of our listeners a chance to briefly get to know who you are. I've had a chance to see your story and, and hear it not firsthand, but through a video that was published of your story. And so I wanted to create this space and give those that are part of our community and listening to the show a chance to get familiar with your work. So if you don't mind, would you be willing to share a little bit about who you are, why you do, why you do what you do, and what you have done with a lot of the experiences that you've lived through? Sure. Thanks for having me on, by the way. Absolutely. Um, so for me... Uh, my story really gets going when I'm in college, uh, and I'm like a normal kid, but I feel overwhelmed by life circumstances and that I wasn't given the instruction manual for how to deal with life on life's terms. So I started using alcohol and drugs to numb the way that I felt. And, uh, within two years I was kicked out of school because I was a full blown alcoholic and drug addict. And I ended up finding myself, uh, one couch away from living on the streets, um, having been kicked out of my home and kicked out of my job and my car had been repossessed and throwing up blood. And my life was just a complete dead end. And I was a complete waste of potential, theoretically, according to my parents, at least. And um, I I went to rehab as a last ditch effort to save my life at the age of 23. Mm. And when I got into rehab, they taught me the instructions for how to deal with life. And they gave me uh, three principles that I talk about in my TED talk uh, for how to not only recover, but how to live in a completely different way. And those three principles became the entire way that I operated both personally and professionally. And one of the things that I discovered was when I looked around, I felt like everybody in the professional world was hiding their true selves or doing what I call wearing a mask. And yet what I was being told by my sponsor and by my recovery community was that if I wore a mask, I would die. 
And so I tried to reconcile those two concepts and I started to do things professionally that I thought would make me a failure and they made me more successful than the people that I was competing with. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't using business best practices. I was just implementing the principles that I learned in recovery. And so mm-hmm. I was able to use those principles to, uh, you know, I'm over 17 years clean, so I haven't used, um, but I was also able to get eight promotions in eight years in corporate America to Fortune 50 company. Then I left there and at the height of the recession, I founded a company called Inquicker, um, was a healthcare software as a service company that became an Inc. 500 company and we sold a publicly traded company. And then I went and ran a nonprofit to run the Nashville entrepreneur ecosystem here in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And I did a TED talk called Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do, where I was trying to get the message across that I think that the best leaders in the world are recovering addicts. Mm-hmm. And that TED talk got a lot of traction. And so then I wrote a book uh, to carry that message. And now my life is exclusively dedicated to carrying the message that the principles that addicts use to recover can completely and fundamentally transform the way that anyone lives and leads. Mm-hmm. Before we dive into kind of the theme of today's episode, and that is really operating behind the mask, I want to give you a chance to elaborate on what you just mentioned as far as the principles that addicts use, because I've always been curious about this field and this demographic. My, uh, a good friend of mine was actually in this space, and I believe he somehow works within the communities, like volunteers at AA meetings and stuff like that. And so every time we have a conversation now, I just bombard them with questions because yeah. I just want to learn more. I, not even about the steps, but how do you implement? How do you carry forward that mindset? How do you spread the message? So for those of us that are not familiar with this concept, dive a little bit deeper into what you just said about the TED Talk and the book that you wrote and why you think those that are leaders are actually addicts at their core. And what they, yeah, so, what they carry with them as far as the mindset. So the um, so the title of the book is "Great Leaders Look Like Drug Addicts," similar to the TED Talk, and I mean it as a double entendre. Um, so on the one hand, I think that those that we consider great uh, historically, as far as leaders, when we think about what we need to do to become a quote unquote great leader, we think about having to hide parts of ourselves, hiding our weaknesses, our insecurities, our doubts, our failures, pretending that we have it all together, mm-hmm. um, and then. At the same time, that's what addicts do that are in active addiction. We're constantly lying to get what we want. Um, We just don't want success. We want to get high. And so to me, the thing that most people don't talk enough about is the other side of leadership and the other side of addiction. Um, For me, my addiction is not a stigma. It's a superpower. Recovery Mm -hmm. gave me a set of principles that gives me a competitive advantage in professional environments. And so I think that leaders that hide themselves are hiding behind a mask by the time we're four years old 90 percent of us are lying we've learned how to lie Mm -hmm. Um, by the time we get into the professional world all those people with power are hiding themselves behind a mask and so we learn that that's how we have to execute our professional lives but meanwhile um, i'd be in 12-step meetings and you know who the best leader in the world is it's not a president of a country it's not a ceo it's a freaking sponsor Hmm. A sponsor is the best leader in the world. Mm-hmm. And they showed me a fundamentally different way to lead. And I can boil it down to three principles. Practice rigorous authenticity. So not just be authentic when it's convenient. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we hear about authenticity, we hear about authentic leadership, but no one's actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Rigorous authenticity. That means all the time, no matter the stakes. And then surrender the outcome. 
That means literally letting go of the result, which leaders are not taught and doing uncomfortable work. And we're taught how to do hard work. We're taught how to do smart work, but we're not taught how to do the emotional uncomfortable work. And when you put those three together, they create a really powerful system that can allow anyone to start to take off their mask and really unlock their true potential. Mm -hmm. So how did you break away from that, from the mask that you were wearing? I'm assuming that you were wearing one when you, when you said you worked for that company and you were kind of told that this is the image that you have to embody in order to get out of the circumstances that you were in. But then you realize that that may not be the ultimate truth. Yeah. I mean, so for me, it started in rehab. Um, cause I walked in there with a, you know, a luggage suitcase full of masks and, uh, I'd take one off and there'd be another one underneath. Um, and, and I really had to kind of break down who I was to, to the most basic barrier. And the truth was I've been so busy telling people who I thought I was, I didn't know who I was. And I had to really get engaged in the practice of, of knowing. So when I entered the corporate world, and I talk about this in my book, it felt like I felt like a complete outsider. You know, um, I could be in the middle of a 12 step meeting in a state that I don't live in, where I don't know anybody in the middle of the hood where I'm the only white face and feel more loved and connection and safety than I did working at a fortune 50 company. And that's because when I was in a 12 step meeting, no matter where I was, I was surrounded by people that valued living mask free. Mm-hmm. And when I was in that corporate environment, everybody was saying yes to things that they could say no to hiding their weaknesses, avoiding difficult conversations and holding back their unique perspective all in the name of getting ahead. Mm-hmm. And I remember making the decision to not operate that way. And I thought that it would make me fail, but it made me successful. I thought that I wouldn't get a promotion. And then I ended up managing people that were my mentors. And it was, a, it was the oddest thing because for me, it wasn't about professional gain. It was about, I needed to practice these principles or I was going to die. I just chose to be really aggressive in applying what I learned in a 12 step environment to a particular leadership framework. And I felt very alone in the corporate culture. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing today. I don't want people that want to live mask free, feel alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I, I didn't, li- I mean, I, I had moments where I would wear a mask, you know, like uh, people would ask me, um, you know, so, so, you know, you, you went to rehab, are you an alcoholic? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. And I didn't want to say drug addict because there's a greater stigma with drug addict. So for a while I used to introduce myself as an alcoholic. And then after a while, I'm like, oh, wait, no, you know what I really am? I'm a drug addict. That includes alcohol, but includes drugs. And so I would wear like little masks, but more or less, I operated from outside the margins and I felt alone and I thought that it would make me uh, fail and it didn't. It it made me successful. How did that realization help you in, in developing your own sense of belonging and identity in knowing that just the slight wording or the slight word change of I'm a drug addict to I'm an alcoholic lessen the stigma. And the other part that I'm curious is what is that stigma that is carried with both of those? Yeah. So I think the, the stigma, there's a stigma for being any sort of addict, Mm -hmm. Uh, but alcoholics are the most accepted form of addiction um, outside of workaholism, probably. Um, and so when you say drug addict, people start to have different, uh, ideas in their head about who you are, where you came from, what you did. And, uh, we just get, 
so like there's even a disability act that specifically uh, says that alcoholics are covered um, as a disability, but drug addicts are like, there's, there's all kinds of little discriminations against drug addicts when we talk about that stuff. But honestly, none of that stuff really matters. The power is in the power of owning your story. Cause here's mm -hmm. the deal. When I tell people that I'm a drug addict, most of the people I tell that to, they're not a drug addict, but they have something that they think is the worst thing about them. Mm -hmm. Everybody has that and we're all hiding it from everybody else. But when you own your story and you lean into it, you offer a form of connection that allows the other person to step into who they really are. And that creates a bond that's really hard to break. Mm. So when I started to own my story and own who I really was and, and really step into living mask free, mm -hmm. it, it made me unpopular. But the level of connection that I had with my employees, with my customers, with uh, my mentors, with everybody else was so much greater because they knew that I wasn't going to be wearing a mask. And so that success is what propelled me forward. I mean, I, mm. I know a lot of addicts that are scared to be open about who they are in a professional environment and anonymity is a very personal choice. But for me, I, I had a sponsor that was like, Hey man, what's true anywhere is true everywhere. You mm -hmm. gotta share it. Mm -hmm. And owning that story in the professional environment, just owning that difference between alcoholic and drug addict was so, it was so scary, but then it was so empowering. Cause once I tell people I'm a drug addict, like saying I didn't hit my number doesn't feel as scary. We're saying, I don't know how to use Microsoft Excel isn't as scary. And all of a sudden that enables me actually to do all these other things that are going to make me more successful. Saying no to things that I should say no to instead of saying yes, isn't as scary because I've, mm -hmm. I've owned what other people think is the worst part about me. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is a circumstance that people can't come back from? And the reason why I ask that is because a lot of the conversations that I've had recently revolved around giving second, third, fourth, fifth chances to individuals in life. And part of it is because, I mean, let's face it, we're all humans. We all go through challenges. We all go through obstacles. And I think every single one of us is trying to figure it out. And we none of us have it figured out, right? Yep. It's, an, it's one of those moments where you feel like you know everything, you all of a sudden know nothing because there's so much more to learn within that. And so I've been always curious as far as, are there circumstances that people simply can't come back from? I don't think anybody's beyond redemption as long as they're breathing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I do think that just knowing from my own story, we have a saying that your bottom is when you stop digging. Mm. And for me, the thing that I learned and the reason that it's so important to, for me to abstain from alcohol and drugs is um, recovery for me, living mask free is, is a fundamental rewiring of my muscle memory. Mm -hmm. it's completely reprogramming how I live. And so every day I'm either feeding the addiction or I'm feeding my recovery. And, and so I think that though anybody that's really gone through horrible circumstances, um, I know people that, you know, will be locked up the rest of their life due to what they did, but they're clean on the inside. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't mean on the inside of their body, like in the prison system, they're clean mm -hmm. and they're living their life in a way that they didn't on the outside. I think Anybody has an opportunity for redemption if they start practicing these principles or anything else like that. But I, I think it's a very personal thing. I think some people might choose that they are too far gone and not choose mm -hmm. their form of recovery, but that's up to them. I think the possibility is there for everybody. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I've been curious when it comes to a lot of these different circumstances that we experience as humanity 
is I play basketball here two or three times a week with a group of my friends in Austin, Texas. And one of the things that's always been fascinating to me is the basketball court is located near this, I guess you could say it's like, it was used to be a bathroom, but now it has become in a way almost like a homeless shelter. It's where a lot of people just live and eat and everything. And so I've always been the type of person, at least in my time here, that will strike a conversation with anyone that's that's there to try and understand not only how did you get there, but what are you learning from it? You know, are you trying to get out? And if there's a way that I can help when it comes to resources, then uh, at least I can hear the possible avenues that I can be of service. And one of the things that this these experiences and conversations made me realize is that people in those circumstances are able to get the same exact things that you and I are trying to strive for outside of them. Mm-hmm. Sense of community, belonging, identity, love, acceptance. They're experiencing all of those. And the reason why I was fascinated by hearing that was because prior to opening myself up to those conversations, I always thought that that's what they were lacking hmm. or they couldn't get. And then yet I create this space and one of them says that, I mean, literally has plenty of money to live, but he just chooses to be a part of it because that's where his community is. And so I think what it, the reason why I wanted to point that out is because we're very quick when it comes to judgment. We'll judge yep. the book by its cover before we even read the title of it. Yep. And people 100%. is the same exact thing. I think that's true. I mean, uh, I know, uh, I have so many friends that uh, younger me would say, why are you hanging out with them? Mm-hmm. You know? And the thing is, is that who we are is in terms of success is typically measured on the outside. And I think what truly matters is the inside, like inner success. And I don't know anyone that's able to, achieve inner success without finding a community, a society of people that are like-minded to them Mm -hmm. um, that they're able to connect with as real humans, as opposed to trying to pretend that they're this or that. Mm -hmm. And you always need at least, I believe one other person that's going to believe in you and that stays in your corner. Right. And having that individual who can be there for you and just help you understand that, that, Hey, it's okay to go through all these different challenges and adversities because I'm here for you. And, and the other thing that I've learned throughout my own life is that sometimes people will see and believe in you before you even believe in yourself. And that's what gives you, I think the ultimate permission to just go after it. What is the worst thing that absolutely can happen? Man, for me, the worst thing that could happen is to become a drug addict. So mm-hmm. it's all uphill from here. I mean, when I, when I entered in recovery, uh, they said, we're going to love you until uh, you love yourself. And they meant it. Mm. And they invested in me um, in a way that nobody, I never learned what unconditional love really was. Mm-hmm. I never knew what that was until I walked into my 12-step program. And I met a bunch of people that were, were like me that had faced similar challenges. And they opened up their homes to me. They, I, I still remember my first sponsor. I had like a year clean and I was moving and he had mm-hmm. like this $50,000 truck. 
and I needed to move a bunch of stuff. And I remember telling him like, Hey man, I, I wasn't able to book a, a moving van. And he just threw me the keys to his truck. And I was like, you do realize that the odds are that this truck comes <laughs> back, right? <laughs> like that's the most likely outcome that you could expect out of this situation. And he just looked at me and said, no, man, I trust you. He trusted me before I trusted myself. I didn't trust myself with those keys, <laughs> but he did. And you know what? Those keys came back to him uh, when it would have been in my nature to not do that. Um, and that was, uh, I, I still remember, uh, you know, one of my really good friends uh, in early recovery, his name was Kenny. And he and I hated each, we were like, or, we were like oil and water the first like 90 days, you know, here mm -hmm. I was a kid that came out of like a middle upper class upbringing and all that kind of stuff, which I hate saying. Um, and then he's a guy that, you know, spent most of his life in San Quentin and we were like oil and water. And then we became like really good friends. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's because one of the things you learn in recovery is don't focus on your differences, focus on your similarities. And if it's one thing that doesn't discriminate, it's the disease of active addiction. And so to be able to like connect with those people and be known by those people and to see my sponsor open his, up his home to me, to Kenny, to all these other people. Uh, and, and at the same time, the reason that sponsors are the best leaders in the world is they never pretend that they have more strength than you. Mm. They never say, I have it all figured out. They use their fault, their fa failings and weaknesses to help educate you. They don't mm -hmm. say, I've got it all figured out. They say, man, this is what I'm walking through. I'm totally screwed up. Like what CEO does that? What politician? When was the last time you heard a politician answer a question with, I don't know. I mean, you know, the best you never. can hope for. No, the best you can hope for from a leader is they'll say, I struggled once. But to me, a truly great leader is I'm in the middle of the crap right now. I have no idea how the story ends, but walk with me and see what I do. Mm -hmm. Like that is real leadership and it requires a level of humility that most of this world's leaders don't have. Mm -hmm. And I think it also brings up a really good point as far as the spaces that you and I are creating. And that is really opportunities for other people to engage in, in find their own answers to some of their own questions that they're trying to answer. But within that is that I think there's a persona or almost an expectation that comes with our roles. And that is somehow we have figured out life. <laughs> but in, in, in yeah. all honesty, we haven't. We're no. still trying to actively figure out. All we've done is we've developed the courage and the confidence to take one step forward and then a step beyond that and a step beyond that. And the reason why I wanted to share that is because it, it resonated with me when you mentioned the fact that leaders are those who have found the humility and are still trying to just take someone else's hand and say, Hey, just walk with me. That's all we're ever trying to do. I think in my opinion is extend that invitation to walk with us. We don't have it figured out. And even the things that have, I have figured out through this work, they may not be the things that ultimately help you. Right. Right. But it's, it's important not to pretend that we have all the answers. I, 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 I love that so much. I remember uh, working with my marketing firm. They're like, you realize what you're doing is building a personal brand. And I was like, crap, I don't want to do that, but okay. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I started to notice was how, how uncomfortable my team got when I would want to be vulnerable in like content in social media or some mm -hmm. other form. They would, they would be like, whoa, people aren't going to, you know, follow what you're saying if, if you show that you don't know what you're doing. And I'm like, 
Man, if there is somebody that should be able to take their mask off, you know, when they're doing this crap, I mean, I, I've never been to one of Tony Robbins' event, but I've never seen him talk about the problems that he's going through right now on stage. Yeah. He talks about how he'll fix you. Um, and so, I, you know, I've got this. Uh, so in the book, I, I talk That's about the mass free system mm -hmm. and the mass free program. And so I've got this uh, wonderful woman who's in, in our program and she uh, holds back her unique perspective a lot at work. Mm -hmm. And so she was in a meeting with seven to 10 of her peers and they were working on a project and she did five minutes of uncomfortable work where she decided not to hold back her unique perspective when she normally would because of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And it saved her team 14 to 20 hours. So five minutes of uncomfortable work saved her team 14 to 20 hours. And that level of success in terms of efficiency is ridiculous. But then how she felt about herself in terms of confidence was great. Mm -hmm. But then I'm in a mask-free meeting with her last Friday. And I shared with them that I'm really scared about my business right now with everything that's going on with coronavirus mm -hmm. and how, you know, a lot of my business is based off of speaking fees and all that kind of stuff and book sales and and everything's come to a screeching halt and I don't know how I'm going to be able to pay my employees. And, and in the thought occurred to me, would she still believe in me mm -hmm. if I tell her that I'm, I'm scared about what I'm doing? Will she still believe in this movement if I, if I have insecurity about my ability to maintain it? But I shared, and of course, 99% of the worst things that ever happened to us only happen in our head. <laughs> they were inspired by it. Like, mm -hmm. and, and so I feel like I've got this hack, like you and I have this hack where literally all we have to do is act differently than the generations of command and control leaders that came before us. And we suddenly have a competitive advantage as leaders. Like they will die off. Their old ways won't work. Like there are so many dynamics in the world and I go into this in my book, but there's so many dynamics in the world that lend itself to being how, to proving how mask free will make you a better leader. Mm -hmm. But it's just words and emotions. Like yeah. it's not buying technology. It's not, not buying a degree. It's not buying a car. It's not buying a piece of equipment. It's, it's not getting a training. It's not any of that stuff. It's literally just being who you are. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, you have a competitive advantage. And that's like so counterintuitive because you assume that to get to the corner office or to become CEO or to whatever you want, build your platform. Mm -hmm. You have to pretend that you have all your stuff together, but I really think the world's changing. And I think that those that are willing to live mask free will be rewarded. Yeah. And one other thing that I'll add, add on to what you just said, and that is a conversation I had earlier today with another friend of mine that I met through LinkedIn. And she said this, that the level of understanding that, that you and I have, let's face it, we didn't wake up with, we didn't, we weren't born with this. We were born yeah. with the ability and the capacity, but everything um, this is, we are products. I'll speak from my perspective. I'm a product of 27 years and at least 10 to 12 years of daily awareness and observation as far as wanting to change my inner dialogue because I understood how I understood the impact that once you internalize something and then you externalize it, that that has not only on yourself, but on your, on people around you on the actions and the thoughts that follow that. So everything that we're sharing, yes, there is for sure a possibility for people to think like that. But there's also one thing that's important to understand, and that is the things that we're talking about, they're not common practice and they're not common knowledge. Correct. 
people, you, you have to tap into this. You have to seek out those resources that are going to help you change your language, change your environment, things like that. So I'm, I am grateful that I met you and have this understanding, but I also want to point out to listeners that even though it starts from a commitment to this journey, but it's, it's, it may not happen overnight because it, it didn't happen, happen overnight, overnight. Yeah. for us. It took us years to get to this point. Yeah. But you can do the same thing. If you're listening, you, can, you truly can. I do believe that the first step to it all is commit to yourself. Commit to the possibility. So I, I totally agree with you. Like one could argue that for me, this is 17 years in mm -hmm. my recovery or 41 mm -hmm. years in my life, but either way, it, it requires a level of dedication. But one of my chief frustrations, so like, um, I love Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. uh, I love her work. I, I've read her books. Uh, she was an incredible inspiration to me. And I remember when I was leading my startup, I had like 50 employees and I bought them all her book. And I was flabbergasted trying to understand why, because she's all about authenticity. I was like, why aren't you guys doing what she said in this book? And they're like, oh, we're not like you. And so I started asking myself the question, I'm like, well, what makes me different? Yeah. And I realized that different was I have access to a system that has been working for 80 years. That is literally no pun intended, step-by-step step, 12 steps that can allow any dope addict, any addict of any kind to stop mm -hmm. doing something that they can't stop doing. It's literally magic. And what makes it magic is not inspiration and hope. It's practical step-by-step -step implementation that takes all of the friction out of how do you actually manifest the potential in what you and I are saying or what mm -hmm. Renee Brown talks about, or what anyone else talks about when they're talking about enlightenment or authenticity. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I wrote my book because I was actually really pissed off that everybody talks about inspiration, but nobody's actually talking about how do you actually do it? Like, yes, I want to live this way, but literally when I wake up tomorrow morning, what do I do differently? Yeah, like, what's what are the, the first specific step? concrete mm -hmm. actions that I take? And so what I did was I basically took my experience building companies and, and, and my experience as a 12 step recovering addict. And I built a step-by-step -step system in my book that allows anyone in one minute a day with a very specific action to be able to start to evaporate the mask that they wear on their face and like gain a level of freedom and power that they never thought was possible. But it requires a step-by-step -step commitment to implementation. And one of the things that they told me in recovery when I got there was they said, um, you can't be too stupid for recovery, but you can be too smart. And that was a really big awareness for me. And that, that when the meaning of that really meant was if I try to invent a new way, if I try to ask why, mm -hmm. if I do all that kind of stuff and I over-intellectualize, I'm going to get lost. I'm going to wonder why I'm not achieving whatever it is that was in the inspiration that I read. But if I, I can just follow directions, if I can just follow directions, <laughs> that's a, that like, that's it. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a saying that 90% of addicts relapse and it's not because they're destined to relapse. It's because they can't follow directions. Um, but the 10% that stay clean, they follow directions. And so I was like, you know what, when it comes to being um, an authentic leader, when it comes to living, leading mask free, I'm not saying people need to follow my directions. Um, I'm not saying that the world needs to follow whatever it is that I wrote out, but I at least wanted to codify whatever it was that I had been doing mm -hmm. and break it down into a step-by-step -step implementation plan that made it like really concrete and practical and practical and tangible. And then really 
really efficient. Like when people walk out of my workshops, they have like these worksheets that they go through, but all they walk out with is a five by seven card mm -hmm. and they just have to look at it one minute a day and that's it. And then it just magically works. But it's because you're, you're using a system and it's inspired by the stuff that I learned in 12 steps. So people need the, how we talk a lot about the, what and the, why people need the actual how. And I think mm -hmm. you, you said like the five tips, my five tips, I, I'm not saying that, you know, my, how that I've invented is the only how, but I know that right. we need more practical operating frameworks that allow us to manifest the potential that we get in a Ted talk or a podcast or all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. This might be a bold uh, claim to make, but something that I've observed over time, and I'm curious to know your perspective on it. Why do you think people have a hard time listening to the advice of others? And, and I guess the tendency of overthinking it instead of actually trying to apply what the person says? Um, I think that's a great question. The first thing that comes to my mind is people have trouble listening, period. Mm. They, and this, this is true for me, um, we, we are, our brain is so overactive and doing so many things, it's hard to quiet ourselves to be able to listen. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that all that brain activity, not to get too crazy here, but is coming from a rather <laughs> egoic place. And so the idea of surrendering to somebody else's how somebody else's directions is something that the brain doesn't like. So it's going to look mm -hmm. for any opportunity to sabotage it. That was true for me in the 12 steps. Um, and so I think, you know, and one of the things that helps us overcome that is, uh, novelty. So, you know, you go to a workshop or a conference, you know, that's all about personal improvement and they play music and they pump oxygen into the room and they essentially get you high mm -hmm. and you get really excited. You make your vision board and then you go home and two weeks later, it's in, you know, a pile of junk mm -hmm. uh, because the real change doesn't happen when like one Lamborghini, you know, one huge Ferrari Testarossa moment. It's a Lamborghini chopped up into a million pieces, ingested bit by bit. Mm. every single day mm -hmm. because it's about behavior change. It's about muscle memory. It's about reprogramming your body and your mind in really small ways. And I think that in order to be committed to that, you have to be willing to surrender to someone else's process. For me in recovery, it was surrendering to the 12 steps. I hated that idea. Mm -hmm. I was like, who the heck do these people think they are? <laughs> um, you know, and I, I want, cause I'm all about personal empowerment. And then someone said, you don't have a problem surrendering to electricity. I was like, what That's do you true. mean? Like, well, electricity empowers you to do all kinds of things, but you're pretty reliant on it. I was like, oh, uh, yeah, actually I am pretty keen to surrender to electricity. And I'm like, well, think of 12 steps as like way more than electricity because it's going to save your life. And that was helpful for me. So I spent most of my life looking for other people that have figured things out, sponsors, if you will. And then trying to break it down in a step-by-step implementation plan so that I can actually achieve the promise in whatever they said. And I don't have a problem surrendering to the best idea in the room because odds are mine isn't it. <laughs> like that's just the probability of it all. It's mm -hmm. probably not mine. And then when it is like I can execute to that, but I think that we really struggle with surrender because our brains want to have control. Mm -hmm. And you bring up a lot of really good points, but one of them is this concept of ownership, right? Wanting to know that it's yours. That's why I think it's, it's difficult for us as individuals. Let me speak from my perspective. It was difficult for me sometimes to 
recognize that, hey, this may not work the way that I envision it. I may have to pivot. And part of that pivoting may require joining some other team and combining the two ideas. And so it's almost like you, you gave birth to that thing and now it's no longer your thing. Now it's a combination. But really, if you think about it in, in perspective, every idea, I think, in my opinion, every idea, everything that we develop and become, it has always been a collection, uh, collective effort. Everything. You wrote that book, but here's the true story behind writing a book because I'm in the process of writing one myself. You start with the action and you actually do the work, but you have an editor you have a person that's going to, you have 10 other people that give you feedback. Yeah. You have a publisher, you have someone who's in charge of your marketing. And, and so it's all of these different perspectives. Hey, what about this way? Or have you thought about it that way? So at the end of the day, it's something that you started, but let's be honest, it's not your, it's not a hundred percent your thing. Nothing it, ever it's a is. combination of all these things. Yeah. And that's the thing about life. All of these insights and all these actions and behaviors that we have within our daily life it's because we saw it somewhere else and then we're like oh this would be cool to implement or i didn't know you make your sandwich sandwich this way maybe i should try that so it's always a combination and i think there's just this tendency for us to think sometimes that hey this is my thing this is my baby i can't give it up i gotta have ownership of it when you didn't have ownership in the beginning exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I totally agree. Um, I remember I, when I started this process and uh, I hear you on all the people, like I feel like a liar when I say I wrote a book because it definitely <laughs> was a we wrote a book. Mm -hmm. um, but just like when my wife had a baby, it's not we had a baby. She definitely had the baby. Um, <laughs> she had to go through all that work. So I guess both apply. But I, I think that, you know, when I started off with a, a marketing um, or company that they, they were like, what's your archetype that went, took me through this process. And, and they, and uh, you know, everybody's got a different framework for this, but they brought up a magician and a sage mm -hmm. and magician is somebody that actually creates magic. They like create something from nothing. That's like amazing and magical. A sage is someone who takes wisdom from one place and applies it to another. Mm. And I remember when I went through that process, I wanted to be the magician so mm -hmm. badly. Like I wanted to be special. Right. I, I grew up watching movies and reading books about all these special people doing special things. I want to be special. But when I really looked at like my track record, even with my startup, right, we were doing online scheduling in healthcare. Well, at the time that we did it, you could not schedule a healthcare appointment, but you could schedule an appointment for your hair, your car, and your cat. Um, we were just new in bringing it to healthcare, right? And so it wasn't completely a new concept, it was just applied in a new way. Well, same thing with what's going on. Like, for example, with my book, I sometimes struggle to take credit for what's going on with it because I just took something that's been working for addicts for 80 years in the addiction recovery context mm -hmm. and applied it to the leadership context. And so I think that most of us, both things are true. We are all the same and we are all have our own unique potential and perspective mm -hmm. and it, they, they conflict and that's okay. But at the end of the day, we're all just learning from each other. We're, we're bringing our own unique perspective into the mix. And we just have to recognize that all the material we're working with was there when we got there. We didn't just mm -hmm. create the material. Mm -hmm. It was already there. 
And I think one other thing that's worth pointing out is this, when we, when we talk about this concept of stealing each other's ideas or misusing them, there, there might be a way to um, say that it's a thing, but at the end of the day, I mean, we're all borrowing each other's perspectives. We're all relying on each other as a resource. And so if your intention is good, and that is to serve others and, and maybe part of that service, I don't know, you turn into you turn your book into a full-time income, right? Here's the thing that I think sometimes we don't understand is that in order to actually make something your full-time income or full-time living, there is a ton, a ton of work that you got to put in. It doesn't happen overnight. You're going to be put in circumstances where you may not have been before when it comes to asking for help or relying on certain people, relying on certain resources. I mean, let's be honest, manifesting resources when they're not available. And, and that's the process that we sometimes we don't talk about is because so much of the Instagram and Facebook and all these other worlds, it's a highlight reel. It's you yep. see the end result. You see, you see Leonardo DiCaprio holding that Emmy, but you don't see him possibly almost com committing suicide or thinking, what is the point of all of this? You don't see those things, nor do we even have, I think the courage sometimes to even make those posts. And, and acknowledge that thing. And so I think it's important to understand that it's okay to live life on your own terms and to document as much as you can, instead of thinking that, oh, success is only this, because let's face it, success is whatever you define it to be. Yes. And it's okay for you to have a different definition compared to mine. I know a lot of people that have achieved quote unquote success that do not feel successful. Yeah. I mean, when we, when we allow the world to define what success is, I think we really feel successful. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about how do people find the book and what are some of the ways that people can connect it with you and your work? Yeah, thank you. So uh, you can go to michaelbrodyweight.com, uh, B-R-O-D-Y-W-A-I-T-E. Um, I'm also on all the major social platforms because I think that social media is where masks are the most. So I'm putting out as much mask free content as I can. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but if you go to my website, you can get like a, you can download an audio intro to my book. And if you go to my social stuff, some places right now, I'm actually giving my book away for free right now. Digitally depends on, um, where you are, but connect with me any of those places if, if you want to live and lead mask free if you want to rip that mask off i have a way to show you how and i'd love to connect with you because it's my mission to create a world where there are no masks thank you all for listening to today's episode i hope you enjoyed it as much as we did if you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Google, or Facebook so more people can find these inspiring and courageous stories. Once again, we thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next week.